The presence of evil is something of which we are all very aware. While kings and rulers vary in degree as to who is more or less evil or good, the Bible gives us basic principles to discern a good ruler from a bad one. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we'll find that even though our earthly leaders are flawed, our eternal leader, Jesus Christ, is the perfect king. He's one who did not demand his enthronement, but had it prepared for him by the Father. Phil, in today's message, you'll provide us with a way to distinguish between good and evil. How so? Well, we'll see the difference between good and evil in the lives of two men, King Ben-Hadad, who in his time of physical need sought the Lord's counsel. And that's one of the marks of goodness, isn't it? Seeking the Lord in a time of difficulty. And then on the other hand, we'll have his servant, Hazael, who murdered Ben-Hadad so that he could have the king's position. And that's what evil does. It desires to take control. And I think the lives of these two men teach us a very practical lesson. Are we going to wait on God in our lives or are we going to try to take control? That's the difference between good and evil. You speak also today of Elisha's sorrow over the presence of evil in the world. What can we learn from this? Well, Mark, I think it's a very dramatic episode in the prophet's life. He is so overcome by the vision of the evil that Hazael will do that he actually begins to weep in the presence of the man. And I think there's a lesson here for the church, not to get angry about all the troubles in our society or trying to get control over what's happening, but to have a deep, compassionate response to sin and to evil and really to be touched to the heart when we see evil around us. Hmm. Thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 7, and listen to God's Word for us today. As perhaps you have noticed from time to time, we ourselves are living in the days of evil kings. Not long ago, I read through the British historian Paul Johnson's history of the 20th century called Modern Times. The main point of that book is that the will of evil men has caused the violent and unnatural deaths of some 100 million human beings during this century, which now is drawing to a close. And we think, for example, of Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Gulag, and of course of Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust of the Jews, of Idi Amin and the bloody purges of Uganda, of Pol Pot and the killing fields of Cambodia. And then beyond these wicked men, we think also of hundreds of lesser tyrants and despots of the smaller kingdoms. These indeed have been evil days. They have been evil, not the least, for Christians. The enemies of humanity are always the enemies of the church, and so also some hundreds of thousands of Christians have been martyred during this century. And if it was true that the blood of Abel cried out from the very ground, one wonders what pleadings and cries have gone up to heaven during this long and dark century. These are the days of evil kings. It was the same way during the days of Elisha. He, too, lived in the days of evil kings. 
Four of those evil kings are described for us in 2 Kings chapter 8, and in each case they have lessons to teach us about God and evil. And the outline of this sermon doesn't just flow as easily as it sometimes does, so perhaps I should give you some of the headings in case you are taking notes. First, we have Ben-Hadad's conversion, and then we have Hazael's treachery, third, Elisha's sorrow, and then finally, Jehoram's heir, and that's heir, H-E-I-R. The first lesson about God and evil is perhaps the most surprising, and that is that God can make the most evil person good. And this seems to be what happened to Israel's old enemy, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, also known as Syria. In the previous two chapters, we have seen Ben-Hadad always at war with God's people. He was the one who surrounded Dothan to capture Elisha, and he was the one who besieged Samaria when all of the people were starving. And yet for all of his animosity, Ben-Hadad was never able to defeat God's people. You remember how when he surrounded Elisha, he himself was surrounded by an unseen army of angels. You remember also how when he surrounded Samaria, his entire army was scared away by spooky noises in the night, and they fled in terror. And so Ben-Hadad was never able to defeat God. And finally, as he lay on his deathbed, he gave up fighting altogether. This is what we read in verse 7. Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad was ill. And when the king was told, the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Hazael, take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him and ask him, will I recover from this illness? You see, Ben-Hadad did the right thing with his illness. He turned to God for help. Not, of course, that there is anything wrong with sending for a doctor, but God is always the one who heals the body even when he uses the means of medicine to do it. By asking God for his prognosis, Ben-Hadad did exactly the opposite of what King Ahaziah did back in chapter 1. In part, we're meant to recognize the contrast here. For Ahaziah injured himself badly in a fall, and he was not sure whether or not he would recover. And in his anxiety, this is 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, he said, Go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. It was a way, you may remember, of consulting the devil himself. And for that great sin, Elisha turned his sickbed into a deathbed with a curse. But you see, Ben-Hadad knew better. He had learned something of the power of God and of the ministry of his prophet. And so he consulted the Lord in his time of trouble. He had come to some sort of faith in the God of Israel. He recognized Elisha as a man of God. He named the Lord as the Lord. So I think we are meant to understand that God had made this evil king good. He had been... The kind of man who refuses to come to God without a struggle. He had wrestled against God. He had objected to his sovereignty. He was so bound and determined to rule his own life that he refused to allow God to be king. 
And yet by the end of his life, he had given up the struggle and let God be God. Some people are like that. They refuse to give in to God until finally they lie on their deathbeds. And so for us, Ben-Hadad is an encouragement. He holds out hope for every unsaved sinner with a mortal illness. Truly, where there is life, there is hope. We are encouraged by this to keep on praying for the sick and for the dying, to ask God to turn them away from evil and towards the good. He may yet have mercy on them the way that he had mercy on Ben-Hadad. Dr. James Dobson tells a story about such a man. It was his own grandfather. He was a moral man who saw no need for the Christian faith. And then, as Dobson writes, at 69 years of age, he suffered a stroke, and for the first time in his life, he was desperately ill. One day, his daughter came into his room, and as she walked by his bed, she saw tears in his eyes, which she had never seen before. And she said, Daddy, what's wrong? And he said, Honey, send for your mother. And my grandfather, Dobson writes, ran to her husband's side and heard him say, I know I'm going to die and I'm not afraid of death, but it is so dark. There is no way out. I've lived my whole life through and missed the one thing that really matters. Will you pray for me? Will I pray? exclaimed my grandmother. She had been hoping for that request throughout her entire adult life, and so she fell to her knees. And that day, R.L. Dobson gave his heart to God in a wonderful way. In the weeks that followed, he became reconciled to those in the church whom he had offended, and he died with a testimony upon his lips. For as he was descending into the coma from which he would never awaken, he said, Now there is a way through the darkness. So you see, there is such a thing as a deathbed conversion. It happens. It has happened to those known to some of those in this congregation in recent months. And yet I say to you this morning, do not wait for a deathbed conversion. Some people drift through life without ever making a firm life and death commitment to Jesus Christ. They have a vague notion that they will get around to God eventually. Someday, they say, I'll have a look into this Christianity. I'll get serious about God later, when I have children, perhaps, or then in my retirement. But right now, I'm much too busy for Christianity. There are others who think that sinners have much more fun, so they want to experiment for a while before they turn to Christ. A man once told me that he was interested in Christianity, but he couldn't come to church because he had a soccer match every Sunday morning. The way that he said it made it sound like the spiritual life could not possibly compete with the sporting life. Now, there is something to be said for playing soccer, of course, and yet I doubt very much that very much soccer is played in hell. You see, there is a time and a place for every priority, but first, God must come. 
And then there are still others who expect that God will give them some last chance to turn to Him at the very end. And yet not everyone has the chance to repent for sin before death. Some die unexpectedly, accidentally. Others slip into a coma and never have a chance to repent for their sins again. Others die in the confusion of old age. And so you see, it is better to come to Christ sooner than later. In fact, the only safe thing to do is to come to Him as soon as possible. To do it now while you are still of sound mind and sound body and thinking clearly about these things, recognizing that you are a sinner, that you cannot give yourself eternal life, and that you must throw yourself upon the mercy of God, which He has shown in Jesus Christ. The Scripture says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know, it's a good thing that Ben-Hadad came to the Lord when he did. For although God did hear his prayer, as we'll talk about in a moment, he did not live to see the next day. The illness was not fatal, and yet he had less than 24 hours to live. This is what we read in verse 9. Hazael went to meet Elisha, and he said, Ben-Hadad sent me to ask, will I recover from this illness? And Elisha answered, go and say to him, you will certainly recover, but the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. Now what do you think of that answer? Some scholars have complained about Elisha's yes-no answer. They accuse him of deliberately deceiving the king. In fact, Nelson calls his statement an outright lie. However, in the event, what Elisha said turned out to be prophetic. You will certainly recover. That is to say, Ben-Hadad's illness was not fatal. But the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. And this was true. For although he did not die of his illness, the king was dead by the following morning. And it happened like this. Elisha made this further prophecy to Hazael. The Lord has shown me, this is Verse 13, the Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram. And then Hazael left Elisha and returned to his master. And when Ben-Hadad asked, what did Elisha say to you? Hazael replied, he told me that you would certainly recover. The next day he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face so that he died. And then Hazael succeeded him as king. You see, this was Hazael's treachery, and clearly it was an act of murder. Hazael suffocated the king in his sleep, and then he usurped his throne. In fact, this is confirmed independently by the Babylonian records, which on the statue of Shalmaneser refer to Hazael as the son of a nobody. In other words, he was not the rightful heir. He came to power through a coup d'etat. And Hazael thus became the second evil king in this chapter. And what his kingship teaches in part is this, that God is not the author of evil, although he does permit it. God is not the author of evil, although he does permit it. Some other scholars have tried to blame Elisha for what Hazael did, or perhaps even to blame God himself. They say that this was a self-fulfilling prophecy, that Elisha was the instigator for Hazael's actions. 
You see, by telling him that Ben-Hadad would die and that he would become king, he was legitimizing and justifying Hazael's actions. He was giving him the permission to commit murder. Now, two things must be said in response to this. The first is that Hazael already had murderous intentions when he came to see Elisha. I think this is what we're to understand from verse 11. Elisha stared at Hazael with a fixed gaze until Hazael felt ashamed. The reason Hazael lost his stare down with Elisha was because he had a guilty conscience. He was already plotting Ben-Hadad's demise, already secretly rooting for him to fail in his illness and to die. The second thing to be said is that Hazael was responsible for his own actions. Admittedly, Elisha knew what would happen, and he knew how Hazael would kill the king and seize the kingship. He knew these things because God knew them. This is one of the mysteries of divine sovereignty. God is never surprised by evil. In fact, he had known about Hazael for a very long time. We learn this all the way back in 1 Kings 19 when God spoke to Elijah on Mount Carmel. The Lord said to him, anoint Hazael king over Aram and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat to succeed you as prophet. We see from this that God was ruling over the nations. He was ruling over Syria as well as over Israel. He doesn't just rule his own people, he rules all people. And so even the most evil kings rule by the permission of God. Nevertheless, God is not responsible for the evils they commit. God's sovereignty is no excuse for man's iniquity. No sinner can ever say, God made me do it. The Bible makes it clear that God is not the author of evil. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong. Job chapter 34, verse 10 and verse 12. This is the great mystery. God is sovereign over everything that happens in the world. Nevertheless, he is not blameworthy for evil. The only person to blame for Hazael's actions was Hazael himself. He was the one who took matters into his own hands. He was the one who used Elisha's prophecy as a pretext for murder. And we see in his evil example the great difference between a good king and an evil king. A good king waits to receive authority from God, where an evil king seizes the power for himself. Hazael should have done what David did. Remember that David, like Hazael, was anointed to be king and then had to wait some time before he entered into his kingship. And on occasion, he even had the opportunity to seize the kingdom for himself. Remember how it was when Saul went out with 3,000 men to find David and to kill him. And as he was in the region near En Gedi, he came to a cave, and he went into the cave to relieve himself, and David and his men were in the back of the cave. And David's men said this. This was their theological reasoning. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. 
But David refused to kill Saul. He knew it was the Lord's will for him to be king, but he also knew that this was not the Lord's way. And so he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. You know, Jesus Christ took the same attitude about his kingdom. He had every opportunity to make himself to be king. He could have done it on that day when he rode into Jerusalem and was cheered by thousands. He could have done it much earlier on that day when Satan showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor and would give them to him without the cross if only he would bow down and worship. Jesus never put the crown upon his own head Though he was anointed to be king, he did not seize the kingdom. Instead, he followed the will of his father even when it went to the cross. And he waited. He waited until after his crucifixion and after his resurrection to ascend to the throne, prepared for him by his father and given to him by his father. This is one great difference between the good King Jesus Christ and every evil king. And as we consider the lives of these evil kings, we ought to notice this contrast between the kings of this world and the king who rules this world. But now as for Elisha, he himself was still living in the days of evil kings. And evil kings bring great suffering into the world, and here we see Elisha's sorrow. comes in verse 11. Elisha stared at Hazael until he felt ashamed, and then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping? asked Hazael. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire to their fortified places, and kill their young men with the sword, and dash their little children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. This moment is full of deep emotion, full of pathos. For as Elisha stands there by the Holy Spirit, he is given to see the course of Hazael's kingship and all of the evil that he will do, including evil to God's own people. And he is overcome with emotion. He is moved to tears by the unspeakable things that this evil king will do to God's people. It shows Elisha's great heart, this prophet was not unmoved by human suffering, but felt deeply and grieved deeply for the fate of God's people. You know, lamentation is one of the duties of every Christian. The Scripture says, mourn with those who mourn. It says, further blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Christians ought, therefore, to show sorrow not only for their own sins, but for the sins of others and for the sufferings that they bring into the world. Sometimes it seems as if there is so much evil in the world that it is hard to weep for anything anymore. Even murder in a city like this has lost its shock value for us. 
Yet anyone who has Christ's heart for a lost and lonely world will often be moved to tears. He or she will weep over death and over natural disasters and over violence done to children in our city and over racial injustice and over the persecutions of the church and over every other evil thing that is done in this evil world. These days of evil kings are filled with sorrow and sadness for God's people. We learn from Elisha not only to weep over these things, but we also learn a lesson about God's ways with evil. Evil is God's enemy. In the day of suffering, many people treat God as the enemy. We're often tempted to do that. We sometimes blame God for the troubles of life. Thus, for example, the French writer Baudelaire once concluded, if there is a God, he is the devil. And that is a way of blaming God for evil. Some people, like Baudelaire, go through life blaming God for every mishap. They never recover from grief or from disappointment. In their anger against evil, they become angry also with God. Now, if God were the author of evil, then he would be to blame. We could not oppose evil without also opposing God himself. But God is not the author of evil. Therefore, we can express sorrow and anguish over evil without becoming angry with God. We can fight against injustice. We can rage against the atrocities of evil kings. We can mourn for the loss of loved ones and grieve over the sufferings of the world. We can and ought to do all these things without opposing God himself. We may never know why God allows the evils which he allows to occur. But we must never forget that evil is God's enemy. The great proof of this is the example of Jesus Christ outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus. For they are confronted with the tragedy of death and with the sorrow of the grieving, Jesus wept. And it was the weeping not only of sorrow over death, but also the weeping of anger against that last enemy. The Bible says, this is John chapter 11, verse 33, that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And that word for being moved in spirit is a term for indignation. Literally, Jesus groaned with fury. As we see this example, we wonder what it can mean for the Son of God to weep angry tears over the evil of death. Professor Bill Edgar explains it like this. Jesus was not weeping with sentimental regret, but with outrage. Jesus, the creator of the universe, Jesus, who would shortly raise Lazarus from the dead, is furious at death without being angry at himself. He made the world without evil. It entered in as an alien intruder, and thus evil and not God is the real enemy. 
And the last thing we should say is that eventually that enemy will be defeated. It is not hopeless to weep and to war against evil, because one day it will and it must come to an end. This chapter of Scripture closes with the stories of two more evil kings. One was Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, who walked, verse 18, in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. That was a mistake. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. When you can read the details of his reign in Second Chronicles, how he slaughtered all of his brothers so that there would be no rivals to the throne, and how he died an unpleasant and painful death. Only one of his sons survived, Ahaziah, who was as evil as his father. He walked, this is verses 26 and 27, in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. For he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. These were evil days for Judah. One evil king followed another. And the chapter ends with several of these evil kings fighting amongst themselves at the cost of the lives of their people. And of course, the same is true in our own times. We look seemingly in vain for international leaders who fear God and who love justice and who do what is right. The world is filled with brutal men of perverse power. And from time to time, we wonder if the whole world has gone mad. We wonder if our sadness will ever end. When? If ever, the Lord will turn our mourning into laughter. There was a man who wondered these same things right at the end of World War II. His name was Carl Gerdeler. He was imprisoned and executed for his involvement in the conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Gerdeler's diary shows that he ended his life nearly in despair. The horrors he witnessed in the days of evil kings caused him to question his faith. This is what he wrote. In sleepless nights, I have often asked myself whether a God exists who shares in the personal fate of men. It is becoming hard to believe this. For this God must for years have allowed rivers of blood and suffering to take place. He must have allowed millions of decent men to die and suffer without lifting a finger And so, like the psalmist, I am angry with God because I cannot understand him. And yet, through Christ, I am still looking for the merciful God. O Christ, where is truth? Where is there any consolation? Gerdeler's life seems to have ended without him finding all the answers. But he was looking in the right place, where we ourselves look out to Jesus Christ for truth and for mercy and especially for comfort. You know, the author who wrote Second Kings chapter 8 was looking for this same Christ. In the days of evil kings, he made this promise. We find it in verse 19, a promise concerning the Messiah. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, that is to say, nevertheless, despite all of the evil in the world, 
For the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. See, even in the days of evil kings, God did not forget his promise to send a good king. David's lamp was not extinguished. Jesus Christ, who is David's son and Jehoram's heir, came into the world to deliver it from evil. And we ourselves hold on to that same promise, that same comfort in the days of evil kings. We know that Jesus understands our suffering. We experience his comfort, and we trust that Jesus has come to defeat every evil king, including Satan himself. And although we still weep sometimes angry tears in this wicked world, we know that eventually every evil king will be vanquished. The Bible promises that Jesus must reign until every enemy has been put under his feet. And we ought therefore to imagine all of the evil kings of the world underfoot at the throne of Christ. Hazael will be there, and also Jehoram and Ahaziah, and Stalin and Hitler and Amin and all the rest of them with Christ's foot upon their neck so that they will never be able to rise again, never able to torment the people of this world ever again. And at the day of judgment, every human being who has ever lived will recognize that Christ alone is King. And so take courage. Take courage in these evil days of evil kings, for these sorry days will soon pass. Christ will fully come into his throne, and the good king will reign, and all will be well. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we confess and admit and say that we don't understand all of your ways with evil. We don't always find it easy to accept suffering, either in our own lives or in the lives of others. Yet we know that you do rule, and that you will one day put every evil to rest, and we hold on to that hope, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. 
For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.